happened was, is that I started thinking about the more and more that I became a distiller and I became a malt whiskey distiller and I've got more and more feeling like, hey, I'm a part of this distilling community. The more intrigued I was about the idea that in Scotland they're doing ex-bourbon barrels. So they're getting ex-bourbon barrels and aging their scotch in them. And I thought, well, you know, on the idea of, um, you know, sustainability and natural resources and all that, and wouldn't it be really cool to get some of those ex-bourbon barrels back and put my malt whiskey in them? You know, sort of a repatriation, the repatriation of my bourbon. And it had come from Scotland. I thought, well, I'm against this idea of, of burning peat in my kiln. But maybe I'm not against the idea of the flavor acquired in the barrel in Scotland, repatriated. You know, because that's a nice little story there too, right? So if it works, it's kind of a cool little story. Welcome back to Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast, where it's time to conclude my chat with Stephen Osborne of Stout Ridge Winery and Distillery in Marlboro, New York. This week, we're going to take the first 15 minutes to finish up our talk about his maturation and barrel selection strategy. And then finally, Steve's going to take us out of the distillery and into his tasting room to really dive into the whiskeys themselves. All right, so picking up where we left off last week, Steve was telling us about what kinds of barrels he likes to use for maturation. Okay, uh, first of all, I like large barrels. So for my malt whiskeys, I don't I don't age anything in small barrels at all. Um, I like um, X wine barrels for obvious reasons. Um, I like X Pinot Noir barrels because I think Pinot Noir is a is a grape that. Um, that's not going to get in the way of anything. It tends to be transparent. It tends to, you can see through the soup with Pinot Noir. Um, and so I have a bunch of uh, really nice um, third use Pinot Noir barrels from California, from Sonoma. Top quality French oak, three vintages of Pinot Noir aged in them. And that's my primary, um, that's my primary aging a barrel at this point. It's kind of what I, I started with the stock of these things. Um, I have put some single malt into some X rye barrels. So there's another possibility for rye expression, right? So malt whiskey aged in X rye barrel. We can add that to combination of rye whiskey, malt whiskey, combination of rye malt and uh, barley uh, malt, you know, into a barrel. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that that's going very far. I had some XY barrels and I had some malt whiskey, and I thought I better do that. I better do this. Maybe that'll turn out to be the way to do it. And in fact, something recently happened that made me think, you know, this is this is that might actually work really well. And what happened was is that I started thinking about the more and more that I became a distiller and I became a malt whiskey distiller and I've got more and more feeling like, hey, I'm a part of this distilling community. The more intrigued I was about the idea that in Scotland they're doing ex-bourbon barrels. So they're getting ex-bourbon barrels and aging their scotch in them. And I thought, well, you know, on the idea of, um, you know, sustainability and natural resources and all that, and wouldn't it be really cool to get some of those ex-bourbon barrels back and put my malt whiskey in them? You know, sort of a repatriation, the repatriation of my bourbon. And it had come from Scotland. I thought, well, I'm against this idea of, of burning peat in my kiln, but 
maybe I'm not against the idea of the flavor acquired in the barrel in Scotland repatriated. You know, because that's a nice little story there too, right? So if it works, it's kind of a cool little story. And I can taste my malt through it. I can taste the complexities in my malt that I've been working on in that whiskey. And yet it has this identifiable peak character. And it has this repatriated bourbon barrel theme that's kind of, you know, the sustainability theme that's always, that's always really nice. So, so now when I compare uh, my whiskeys and wine barrels, and again, you've tasted like a, a Pinot Noir barrel whiskey versus um, the Laphroaig barrel. And I have yet to taste one of my malts out of an ex-rye barrel, but I think that that's going to be eye-opening as well. Is that I think, uh, I think that I'm really discovering that this maturation thing leads to places that you wouldn't have normally thought it to lead to. And that we're definitely going to be releasing our first single malt much younger than I thought. And it's going to be um, from ex-Lafroig barrels. And if you had told me that a year ago, I would have thought, well, what partner did I have to take on that took on such a, a stake interest in my distillery that I capitulated to making Lafroig? But I'm now thinking that, you know, a repatriated bourbon barrel that's been contaminated with a little Lafroig is adding a tint to the glass that really is just beautiful. And, um, and so I think I'm actually going to become a proponent of this idea. Why not have American single malt, you know, part of it be this repatriation of bourbon barrels and pick the distillery you like, pick the character that you like, and, and that can become part of the story. And why not? It's not like the Scots seem to be warring at all about telling people they're using ex-bourbon barrels. They trumpet to the world that they're using ex-bourbon barrels. Everything, that's awesome. So why not say, okay, well, we're using some ex-scotch barrels. And I don't know how prevalent this is, and maybe it's more prevalent than I know, and, and you, can, you can tell me that. But, and now I've bought some, uh, some ex-Ardbeck barrels, so it seems that I, I'm sort of off to the races on this idea. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great approach. And I'll tell you what, the flavor of the whiskey is definitely an affirmation that you're absolutely on the right track. Yeah. Yeah, but you, that, and I think that analogy is good. It's it's glass. It's it's colorful glass, and and nobody ever thinks of like how can something be strongly flavored and transparent? Well, what if it's colorful glass? It's strongly it's strong it has a strong character, but it's still transparent. Yeah, and to your point, very complementary to the spirit that you're putting in it as well. I think I think ultimately I'm going to make a blend of Pinot Noir barrel and X and X Scotch barrel, sort of like. A scotch distiller uses a bourbon barrel and then a sherry barrel. I think that I'll use a Pinot Noir barrel and then maybe into, into some scotch barrels or some, some, something like that. And I have yet to see how the malt whiskey out of the rye barrel, that'll probably be a different expression. I think I'm going to have a bunch of expressions about how do we get rye into malt? And then I'm going to have Stout Ridge single malt. The, the, base, the, the basic line will be repatriated bourbon barrel. All right, now it's time to pivot out of the distillery and head into the tasting room. One thing I really want to talk about heading into this segment is something that is fundamentally at the core of what this podcast is all about. And that's the subject of the definition of American single malt whiskey and and what that means not only in the eyes of the TTB, but also to the distilling community. 
And honestly, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to showcase Stephen Stoutridge because he's doing some really interesting things in some unexpected ways and having some really great results doing it. So as we're tasting through these whiskeys, listen closely to some of the philosophies behind the approaches he's taken and how that's impacted the flavor and quality of his spirits. Okay, into the tasting room we go. All right, what are we starting with? Uh, you're going to start with the Stout Ridge Malt House label. So yeah, this is the uh, this is the what I'm calling the new make, Stout Ridge Malt House whiskey from Malt Mash. Okay, so speak a little bit about why you're using the terminology distilled from Malt Mash. Yeah, so um, the term malt whiskey in uh, the federal government rules on what things are, malt whiskey has to be aged in a new barrel, and I prefer not to age in new barrels. So um, the option to describe it as a malt whiskey without saying it's malt whiskey is to say whiskey from malt mash. And I'm perfectly happy with that. I know there's a lot of people that aren't happy with that idea, but I don't have any problem with it. And I can tell you from doing a lot of customer interactions, the customers don't care. So. So whiskey from malt mash gets me around um, having to do new barrels. Okay, but the mash bill is the same. Yeah, this, well, the mash bill on this is 100% malt from our malt house. Um, this malt was not smoked in the kiln. So the, 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 in fact, my idea on the new make whiskey here is showing off the malt, showing off the quality of the malt. So without um, a lot of a barrel profile and without um, smoke, without it, anything in the kiln. So the mash bill is 100% malt, but with, and this is sans kiln, sans kiln flavor, and just there's a minor amount. This was aged in third use rye whiskey barrels. So um, it should be a pretty neutral barrel. And this whiskey, you can see it from the color and you can see in the flavor. This whiskey is a year and a half in barrel. Um, but there is not a lot of barrel characteristic. It's big, It's a malt bomb. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, just looking at it and smelling it, you can tell it's a fairly young spirit. But, I mean, that malt character is... Sweet and um, organic and something's growing. And it's just... Um, I'm really, really happy with this. The other thing that I would I would say about this whiskey that's a little different than what I do for... Um, for whiskeys where I'm trying to show off the barrel and show off um, the kiln, is that I let it um, I let it get a little more lactic-y in the fermentation. I did a longer fermentation. So where I usually do a three or four day fermentation, this was a six day fermentation. And all that does is the final two days get into a lactic acid bacteria um, and creating this nice big, you know, this big flavor of lactic. So that's done a lot, I think, and people do a lot of that playing around with fermentation times. And what I've found is if you're trying to show off the flavor of the, of the malt, if you're trying to show off the flavor of the grain bill, a longer fermentation time and a shorter barrel time will do that. So that's kind of what I did here. Yeah, and, and the nose on it is nice and round. There aren't a lot of detectable volatiles. And the thing that I frankly kind of expected uh, was some ethyl acetate on the nose to give it a little bit of that kind of nail polish remover smell that people tend to describe, but it's not there. It's really, I mean, it's just a nice, pleasant, round, fruity nose and an absolute malt bomb, no doubt. 
But if you're into a single malt whiskey, man, this is your jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People that know single malt whiskey, one of, one of the nice things about if you haven't been to Scotland and had new make at a Scottish distillery, then I mean, new make is a really good thing. And I would advise anyone seriously doing American single malt, make a new make, show off your malt, you know, because uh, it's, it's nice to show people what your malt tasted like. And then it's nice. You can have them compare that to, uh, to your matured whiskeys and you can show off your maturation with a, um, with a reference, you know, so. <laughs> and show them that you don't have to paint the ceramics. Right. 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 Yeah, but we, we only sell, but all that being said, and, and me saying you, you should do this kind of thing, we only sell it in the tasting room. So um, I, don't, I think it just gets confusing out in the market, you know, but in the tasting room when there's plenty of time to talk, um, people really appreciate it too. I can tell you is that the more people are into whiskey, the more they appreciate you giving them, being able to dissect it, uh, not just verbally, but dissect it flavor-wise while they're standing there tasting and I think, too, philosophically, that this could be a really good sort of entry level into American single malt for anybody because it's a young whiskey. And in America, when we think of young whiskeys, we tend to think of like moonshine or white dog. And we think of harshness. And there typically are really not many positive connotations that come along with that. But this is really nice. I mean, it's friendly. It's pretty. It's fruity. It's not terribly challenging, but it's not meant to be. It's got some complexity in there, but it's really a nice spirit. And to your point, a great springboard into the rest of your line. Yeah, and you can save money on barrels. Use use your third use barrels on it because you're not sure. You know, the barrel is really becoming just a container. But you do want, I think you do want interaction with the wood. You do want interaction with the oxygen. So, you know, I wouldn't advise aging new make and stainless steel. All right, so what do we taste next? Uh, I think what we should do next is the um, 180126. So what this is, is a shorter fermentation time, so less lactic-y, so less, um, a, you know, this big bomb characteristic, a little bit leaner um, to allow the wood interaction to fatten it up. And so this whiskey was in a barrel that had, it's a French oak barrel, it had three vintages of Pinot Noir. Okay, yeah, that explains the color. It's a little bit darker, but with a kind of a pinkish hue to it. Yep, and the darker color is, is partly because um, from the point of view of a spirit, a spirit going into something that's only had a non-fortified wine, the barrel looks pretty new, right? Because the spirit's going much deeper into the wood much faster. And then, of course, you get a little bit of wine color out of it, which is kind of nice. So I'm a winemaker and a distiller and, uh, you know, third use Pinot Noir barrels is, I think, a, was my big, my initial idea that this is really how I would like to go forward. Maybe uh, Cab Franc barrels, Pinot Noir. So the nose, man, really nice nose. It's got some honeysuckle, a nice floral note to it, some brown sugar, vanilla. And there's a, a really nice underlying fruitiness to it. Yeah, and it's a, it's a little bit leaner, which I think actually helps to show off the entire flavor profile. I think that if it were as fat as the new make, you would lose some of the really pretty floral um, in the thickness of the malt. So lean the malt out a little. I, I can do it just with a shorter fermentation. And, um, and then the wine barrel has a nice fruity, spicy, you know, really, I think really, really nice um, characteristics. 
I think Pinot Noir is not over-flavoring it in any way. You know, it's not really impinging on the whiskey itself, but, um, but you can definitely tell that this was not in a, in a new oak barrel or, or a used spirit barrel. You can tell that it was in, in, in a barrel that had some kind of wine in it or something like something other than spirit. Yeah, interesting interplay between the barrel and a little of the wine influence. It's like where those two worlds collide, it kind of, at least on the nose, I haven't tasted it yet. I just keep smelling it. Um, almost kind of a marzipan, confectionery, almond candy. Yeah, Pinot Noir is not going to get in the way. And it gives nice. little hints of things. And uh... Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Some brown sugar and vanilla. A little bit of tanning coming in. You can tell this is not a, this is a young whiskey and it, it needs, uh, I think it needs more time in the barrel to really um, negotiate the tannins. But that being said, uh, I don't think uh, that textural element really detracts from it either. Uh, and I'm not apologizing for uh, an overly tannic whiskey because I, I don't think that this is an overly tannic whiskey. I just think it has a little bit of edginess because of the tannin. Now, I think you could say uh, it's a positive textural event. Um, but yeah, to me, it's a little, a little unresolved tannin. And again, that's part of the idea is this, from the point of view of the spirit, it was a pretty new barrel. And I think right now as it sits, it reads as maybe a little bit aggressive and kind of that spice note is sort of an offshoot of that. But I think that, yeah, a little bit more time in the barrel for that to round out will be perfect. I mean, it's already got great complexity. It's nice. It's a, it's a nice thing for a blend, and that's that's how I'll be using it. Um, I'll be using it as a blender. Also, the other thing that I'll be doing is is uh, when this gets um, another year of age on it, I'll be transferring it to an empty peated Scotch barrel, uh, and so I'll be I'll be piling on the complexity of the Scotch barrel. So I'll be doing you know sort of a double barrel technique. Um, I think once you have that flavor, complexity and flavor load on there, and once you have another year to get the tannin a little bit more resolved, that it'll all work perfectly. I think it'll all work really, really well. I really like it. It's, um, it is a little bit kind of like going at you, but if you look at now the, the long finish, now we, it's been 30 seconds a minute since we tasted. It's pretty nice. What's left is a beautiful flavor. Yeah, it kind of develops on the finish and rounds out. Yeah. It's really nice. Yep. So the next um, would be 0034. Okay, so right off the bat, lighter in color again. Yep, lighter in color. This has been in a barrel that had spirit in it. Actually, uh, just about the same as the... Yep. Um, as the new make. As the malt house, yeah. And that's the new make was also in a, in a used spirit barrel. Actually, the new make was in barrels that previously had three years of spirit and the one in this 0034 is one that had um, about 10 years of spirit in it. Five years in bourbon, five years at Lefroig. So this is an empty Lefroig barrel. All right, let's see here. So I think I'd said in the previous, uh, the previous conversation we had that I wasn't really planning on going to using used Scotch barrels. Um, but once I tried one, this is, this is the barrel. This is actually the barrel. Oh, three, four. Then when I tasted it, I said, okay, you know, stop the presses. It's time for me to rethink what I'm doing here. And it was a major rethink because previous to this, I wasn't thinking of peating at all. I don't burn peat in the kiln. Um, I'm using peat in the barrels. Okay. So I'm going to say something that is, 
I know you won't take offense to this <laughs> <laughs> because it's not at all intended to be a negative thing. This almost on the nose reads like a tequila. Yep. No, I wouldn't be offended by that. No, I'm not a... Like a really nice higher-end tequila. No, te tequilas have a textural side that really no other spirit quite has. And so if this is reminding you of that textural side, I'm... I'm because don't get me wrong, I love a good tequila. I, I really do. Yep. Man, yeah. Because the peat is there, but it's also... It's subtle, but it's also there, you know? it's. Um, I don't know if I used this analogy last time we were tasting, but, but for peat, peat is an interesting flavor because it's a very obvious flavor, but it, it also sort of dissolves away from your taste attention as you taste. So I, I liken it to like, like a, a colored glass window. It's completely obvious you're looking through colored glass, but it doesn't mean that you can't see as well what's on the other side. I think Pete is amazing in its ability to do that, to, to, to color a flavor profile without detracting, and yet the color obviously is a big, is a big effect. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Along with that peat comes, again, a really pleasant, balanced honeysuckle. Yep. That's really nice. Yep. This whiskey is a great example of don't judge a book by its color. <laughs> yes. Because I love when I taste something that kind of pleasantly slaps me in the face a little bit and you don't expect it because it's so light in color. Right. It's kind of like... I liken it to coffee. People assume that the darker the roast, the more caffeine it's going to have. But it's that's not the case at all. And if anything, it's exactly the opposite. Right. This is great because you look at it and it's like, oh, this is a nice light straw-colored spirit, you know? And it has and it has delicacy, but it also has it has punch. It's um I love it because as it kind of opens up and develops and starts to breathe a little bit, it actually gains a whole lot too. And and that the malt really starts to come out too. It really the Yeah. There's yeah. still that big fat malt. Yeah, that tequila aspect of it kind of goes away and it starts to develop more into a very clearly unmistakable single malt. Right. But anyway, this was the this was the very barrel that when I, I tasted it, I don't know, there was more than about two months ago. And it just sort of, I, I said, I have to rethink this whole thing. And then this was a bourbon barrel that went to Scotland. And, and so the, now we're bringing it back home. That idea that I think I was talking about last time of repatriation of, uh, of the wood uh, back home. Um, and and um, I don't think there's anything negative at all. I, I used to think, well, I don't want to use peat in my, my single malts because, you know, peat's not a native thing here. And what am I trying to do? But uh, if you're thinking about sustainability of the barrels. And I think if you do that, you, you can advance your cause in a big way because you know, I don't think that Scotland would have any problem with the idea that Americans were trying to make better single malt by aging it in their barrels and that they were trying to make better single malt by aging it in our bourbon barrels. And there's something about that that I think is a, a really cool story. And I can tell you, I, I do a lot of it right in this room. Uh, consumers um, love it. They think it's fantastic. There's, there's nothing contrived about it and, it, and it all makes a lot of sense. And then when you taste the spirit, it's, it's hard when you taste a spirit like that saying, well, um, you're on the wrong track. It's, it's like, it just tastes so right. Okay, so 19-0053 next? Yep. 
So all this is, is a different Laphroaig barrel. So this is, I'm just showing barrel variation between two barrels. So one thing I can definitely appreciate as I've come to taste more spirits made by distillers who, for whatever reason, made their cuts maybe a little bit too deep. Yeah. Man, I love how on the nose, again, you almost look for that volatile characteristic. You look for those sort of negative. Yeah, the, the Scots would argue that over time that stuff all becomes good. But uh, I don't know that many of us doing American single malt want to wait 15 years. Well, yeah, that's just it. Yeah. <laughs> so so we're definitely, in a, here in the U.S., we're going to make deeper cuts in a, an attempt to get our whiskeys tasting good younger but yeah you've already got great depth and really subtle complexity you don't have a lot of volatiles and it's not tailsy in any way either there's no there's no wet straw kind of a there's no you know higher you don't get a lot of like higher alcohol muck oh man so like i said all that is is a different barrel interesting yeah, it's definitely, I would say, a little bit more subdued. Yeah. Which which I didn't expect to say. Yeah. And a little bit more, I don't know if refined is the best word, but it's not as sort of in your face. Right, as the first. Yep. I think I prefer the 3-4 a little bit to this barrel, but... Um, Ultimately, I think it's going to end up being a blend of barrels and you want barrels with different characteristics and maybe I'll get a barrel that has a little bit too strong, uh, too forward a characteristic uh, and then I'll blend it with that one and sort of try to try to even it out. In fact, in fact that's what I would, let's, let's try. Um, so what I'd like to do is take a little bit of 3-4, put it in your glass and then take a little bit of 2-6 and put it in your glass. And just, it doesn't have to be perfect, just try that. So 2.6, the wine, uh, the Pinot Noir barrel, and 3.4, which is the, the more intense of the Laphroaig barrels. Half and half. Oh, wow. And look at that. <laughs> it's interesting because when you start blending barrels, you get leaps forward in complexity that would not have, uh, you would not have guessed um, by the components. Wow. It's like your tequila went añejo on you. So the interesting thing, the, the first thing I noticed when I when I first smelled this blend, cocoa nibs. I mean, and it's and it's unmistakable. It's right there, cocoa nibs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like there's there's big flavors kind of trying to punch out. Um it's a very unexpected thing, I think. And the smoke note is there, but it's balanced out with this really nice brightness. Uh, super pleasant fruitiness. Yep. Uh, and then you get you get these intense multiplications. I think it's just that flavors overlapping in the two spirits, and they're they're creating peaks that weren't there before. And and you're seeing this cocoa nib kind of a peak. Man, that's. But there's good. also like a smokiness, like a it's really like a like a mezcal kind of a smoke in a real in a kind of a weird way. Yeah, because it's there, but not aggressive. It's very complementary to the structure of the spirit. And and that's one of the things, you know, everybody's got that friend, right? You know, that the friend that when you're talking about how you found a really good bourbon says, oh, yeah, cool. You're into whiskey. I'm really into scotch. I'd love to get you into scotch. Here, try this. And then they pour like 
a Lafroig or Octomore, just this massive peat bomb. And it's like, all right, do you really want to get me into this? Or are you just trying to be an asshole? <laughs> because that's not everybody's bag. And Lafroig hangs their hat on that with their recent ad campaign where they call it out that it's not for everybody. But the people who like it love it. Yeah. But this, like going back to your new make, this is something that could serve as a really solid entry point for someone to get into and, and want to explore more because it's there, yeah. it's approachable, it's not aggressive, it's friendly, it's well-balanced. And I mean, frankly, if, if I were that friend pouring someone uh, something with peat to help get them interested in a different style, I wouldn't hesitate to pour this. And I think generally it would, it would be really well-received. Thank you. And as it opens up, it definitely takes on more of a fruity character on the nose. Yeah, it gets it it gets um, it's a it's a nice big soft flavor profile. It's I don't think quite as intense as the new make, but it's it's lovely how the smoke fiddles around too because you know I think I think even someone fairly versed in Scotch might smell that and think it was more of a tequila smoke or a mezcal smoke than a than a than a Lafroy. Once you taste it, you, I think you can see. Yeah, and the more... smoke is really interesting. It it it's you wouldn't expect that. I mean, what what is it about the wine barrel characteristic that's making um, the Lafroy smoke change in its in its character of the smokiness? And there's more of a sort of that marriage of brown sugar and vanilla that's maybe a little bit more indicative of some barrel complexity. And that's definitely more predominant in the blend. Yeah. I think, I think again, we're, I think too, on the finish of this, you're seeing that unresolved tannin in 2.6 that didn't go away. Um, and that you, you certainly need to get 2.6 um, out a little farther along the timeline. But we can see how nice that's going to be to finally get that marriage of, of wine barrel with X scotch barrel. All right, so next up, Angus's kiln. I think I probably talked about Angus in a previous uh, episode where yeah. I who had influenced me and this guy Angus was, you know, opened the box of spirits and let me sort of discover why I needed to make malt whiskey. And um, so he passed away during the construction of the place. So I named the kiln after him. So that label has our kiln on it. If you, if you visit, you'll see that kiln. That kiln is in the basement of the malt floor. Cool. So the idea of this, um, Angus is a big proponent of rye. He's a big proponent of malted rye. And I didn't, I didn't go in that direction. I, I, I think I talked about that. Um, but I thought, you know, Angus would have really been, uh, I think, happy with the idea that, that my blended whiskey was named after him. Because you can see from just a little bit that we did right there that the blending art is a, is a, is a really interesting art. Of course, we all know that. Um, the blend is where a lot of whiskey really is made. And um, so what I did with this is I said, well, how do I get rye character uh, into my malt whiskey? So this is entirely a, a, an effort to, to bring maltedness into the, um, into the spirit. Also, on top of that, I wanted to lighten the spirit a little bit in the same way the Scots do with their blended. And they're adding grain whiskeys to it, which are, are very light, you know, high rectified spirits. And so there's a little bit of rectified spirit of Mar um, in here that I, I do. It's, a, it's actually 36 times distilled, um, 36 plates. And so there's a little bit of a neutral spirit. There's a little bit of bourbon in there. There's a more rye. 
and then there's the most malt. So that's, that's what this is. The idea was trying to create a blend that uh, tipped its hat to Scotland with the addition of some, not neutral spirit, but of our rectified spirit. This, they wouldn't call theirs neutral spirit either, it's grain whiskey. Um, and then um, the addition of rye um, to tip my hat to Angus. And then the addition of bourbon, because it turned out that without the bourbon, the whiskey wasn't complete. Just couldn't get it to all come together without uh, the addition of a little bit of bourbon. So we have never released a bourbon. Uh, we still haven't released a bourbon, but this is blended with something that we, that we could call bourbon if we released it. So took a while. It took about three and a half months of fiddling around before I got this blend. And man, this is night and day to anything that we've tasted so far. Yeah. All right. And again, just saying the first thing that jumps out at me without judgment or overanalysis, not to be a jerk, <laughs> don't take offense, <laughs> but there's a really cool funk on the nose with this one. Yep. See, and, and that's the thing. A lot of people, when they're introduced to whiskey, I find that they have a tendency to not want to necessarily say the first thing that comes to mind because oh, uh, no, they, they should. you might not want to say something because you don't want it to be taken as offensive, but that's actually, you know, maybe the whole point, a little bit of funk, a little bit of character on the nose that can lead to something really interesting and delicious on the palate. I think what's going on here is that of course the rye whiskey and the bourbon whiskey had to be new barrel aged. So there's a lot of new oak. But there's also that big fat maltiness because this this malt was not in Scotch barrels, right? This this malt was only in uh, was only in um, rye barrel, ex rye barrel. So I think what you're describing as funk is an interplay between that big malty sprouted um, malt thing and the new barrel. I think that those two flavors are combining together to give you this really nice sort of pungent thing. Here's what I don't understand though. I'm also smelling a kind of like briny, coastal salinity right. type of thing. And there is no scotch barrel in this. It's so weird. I'll also say that we use, um, the oak that we use in our barrels is locally grown. So it's New York and we're, we're growing oak near the northern limit of where it can grow. And we get these small little knotty trees and barrel maker has a lot of fun trying to make those uh, tight. Uh, and we get a cinnamon quality. We get a cinnamoniness out of our barrels. And I think it's just, a, it's just the local oak has that cinnamoniness. And I think that cinnamon oak malt is giving you the funk. And then you see in the mouth, it's, it's not what you would expect at all. Not at all. The mouth is just this big, huge softball. Yeah, it's like, quit messing with my head, man. <laughs> because you smell it. And, you know, typically what you smell is going to be fairly indicative of what to expect on the flavor. I mean, there's going to be some correlation there. But here? Yeah. There isn't. Yeah. Right. This is malty, oak, cinnamon, big pungent. And then in the mouth, it all sort of just says, no, I'm going to be a caramel. Yeah. Caramel, brown sugar. Yep. You still get those characteristics, but they're all sort of in line. Whereas in the nose, that's a pretty interesting thing, you know, to have a nice vigorous nose and then this big sort of soft flavor, kind of like a good cheese in a way, right? Good exactly. Cheese will have sort of a, 
a pungency, or even a good mezcal, right? Good mezcal would have a pungency in the nose, and then when you taste it, ah, you know. So here's the other thing that is a little surprising to me. This is 86 proof. Yeah. And that's not like barrel proof by any means, obviously, but it doesn't drink like 86 proof. I know. I mean, I would almost even, man, I would barely call this bottle proof. Man, well yeah, done. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, um, that's what people that buy this tell me all the time too, is that this whiskey just drinks and um, the flavor is just, it's a fun thing to smell and contemplate and then it's an easy thing to drink. And often those two things are at odd. That what's interesting on the nose becomes a bit fatiguing in the mouth, but this is, um, this is there's no fatigue at all there. Oh man, well thank you so much for guiding me through the tasting. All right, so tell me, where's your distribution footprint right now? Uh, what do you have on the market? What do you have available in the tasting room? And what do the next few years look like in terms of new releases? So um, the first we tasted, the, um, the new make is only available at the distillery. Um, I think that that will probably remain to be true. I think um, if I do distribute it, it would only be to a couple of stores that are in my town here. Um, so people could get it when the distillery wasn't open, but they still have to come locally to get it. I, I think that's a good idea to do that. Um, the first one we tasted, the 190034, that barrel is going to be um, our first release of malt whiskey. That's going to happen uh, end of March, early April. So we're tasting it a little bit before release here. And that will be distributed. We distribute within about 30 miles. I'm uh, 170 miles from New York City and where I am, if I go within 30 miles, we're talking, you know, I don't know if there's a million people, but close to it. So I can be fairly locally distributed and, uh, and still sell a lot of whiskey. So I'm very fortunate that way to be close to a major metropolitan area. So um, fairly local distribution and only New York distribution. The, the second whiskey we tasted, which is the wine barrel whiskey, that's got to mature more. Um, that'll eventually make its way, um, hopefully into the second release. And the second release will be a blend. And that will probably be the way it is from now on. So the first, the first release, the 034, will actually be a single barrel release. But I'm not going to be calling it that. The next release will be a blend, a um, couple different kinds of barrels blended together. And then maybe in the future, I'll do single barrel releases again, in which case I'll identify it as the single barrel release. So um, that's how that's going to work. Uh, again, all fairly local distribution. The, um, the blended whiskey is, um, is really selling well. It's all over in this 30, 40 mile area around here. I didn't mention this about the blend, and, and you'll have to slap me for this, but that blended whiskey is uh, in a Solera cask. So you'd think I wouldn't have forgotten that, but it's in a um, 700 gallon oval cask that has had uh, 12 vintages of my wine in it. So wines that I've made over the years, um, emptied it out, and then we put this blend in there. So the blend is a constant blend. We, we do a bottling and then we refill it with more of that blend of rye and malt. Um, and the malt always in ex-rye barrels, not malt that's been in, uh, in scotch barrels. So the blend will never have that peaty uh, note to it. But I think it does, some of that characteristic on the nose is coming from the from that Solera barrel. You know, that, that barrel is definitely contributing some of that big flavor. But you can see in the mouth, it's not really interacting a lot, which I think is it's kind of an interesting 
thing about that whiskey. So that whiskey is, um, I always have 700 gallons on hand and I bottle 50 gallons and put 50 gallons in and wait a month and do it again. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm pretty happy with, with this. I don't think I'm gonna venture outside of what we've sort of been talking about here. I think this is, I'm, I'm really happy with this. And I think that uh, if I can perfect this and keep, you know, keep doing things like this, that that's, you know, the, our future is, is somewhere in this range of whiskeys that you're tasting right here. I think getting your base any, any bigger would make it very hard to have any sort of coherent future. And I feel fortunate three years into this distillery to have, have, have this sort of a coherent lineup. And so my, my idea into the future is perfect it, release older whiskeys, release single barrels occasionally, uh, and just have a lot of fun. Just have a lot of fun with the whiskeys. Uh, Steve, well, thank you again so much for joining me. So if people want to find out more about what you're doing, where can they do that? Yeah, so we're Star Ridge Distillery, and we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. Um, like I said, to get us, uh, you sort of have to be, uh, you know, when you visit New York City, come up north a little bit, and visit the distillery, and buy some whiskey, and you'll be able to get the whiskey a little closer to New York City, but not in New York City yet. Although within a couple of years, maybe even sooner, um, we'll be there. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, we do a lot of posting on Instagram. Um, so if you watch our Instagram feed, you'll get, you'll get new stuff about what we're up to all the time. And we're, we're coming up with new things just because I feel like I've uh, sort of completed the, the, the breadth of the mission that I was looking for in, in malt whiskey uh, doesn't mean that we're going in new directions and we're very actively going in, in other new directions as well. So, so I think we're an interesting distillery to watch. We're doing a lot of different things. We're doing some innovative things and uh, we're trying to do very coherent things. So uh, we like to keep like an internal logic to, um, to the things that we do and why we do them. Steve, thanks again. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. No, this has been great. I've had a lot of fun doing this. And uh, it's fun to taste these whiskeys again. I haven't tasted them in a couple of weeks. And that's it for our time with Steve Osborne of Stout Ridge Winery and Distillery. Again, if you want to find out more, you can check out his website at stoutridge.com, where you can find all of his social links, too. Next episode, I think I'm going to throw a curveball at you. <laughs> But it's my podcast, so I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun, though, I promise. And as always, many thanks go out to Michael Kirkpatrick for writing our theme music. He's been writing and recording for the past couple of decades, not only solo albums, but also with a lot of other talented musicians in like the Good Time Travelers, the Honey Rider Band, the Holler, and a lot more. You can find out more on his website at michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com or just search for him on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp. He's all over the place. You'll find him. Subscribe to keep up on the latest from the podcast. And if you have any questions about anything you heard on this week's episode or if there's a topic you'd like for me to explore a little bit more in depth, just hit me up at asmwpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, I love hearing from distilleries with American single malts they want to talk about. So if you are one and you have one, hit me up. Let me know about it. 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for ASMW Podcast. And, of course, you can be a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash ASMW. And, speaking of Patreon, a big thank you going out to Mr. Patrick Cohn for becoming a patron last week. Thank you, sir, for supporting the cause. Until next time. <laughs>